Luke chapter 4. You can follow along in the Version app. And while you're getting there, you know, it's, we sit in a room with brothers and sisters, and each one of us different in our own ways. Each of us have different personalities. Each of us have different hobbies. Each of us have different jobs. You know, there's a variety of differences amongst us, but there's a lot of things that unite us and, and tie us together. Sad truth is, one of those things is temptation. Every one of us in this room knows temptation. Now, if you're tempted this morning to say that you've never been tempted, then you're being tempted to tell a fib. We've all been tempted. We face it each and every day, and sometimes it's on simple things. You know, to reach your hand into the cookie jar and eat that sweet that you know you shouldn't have. The temptation to look for shortcuts in our jobs. How can I get around doing this big project and how can I just get to be done and I don't have to worry about it? The temptation to share with others what you've heard around the rumor mill. You see, we all face temptations. In a lot of ways, they're big, massive temptations. The temptation to doubt God to doubt his promises, to doubt his presence, to doubt his goodness, to doubt his love, to doubt his provision, to doubt his word. We all face temptation. J.C. Ryle once said, to be tempted is in itself no sin. It's the yielding to the temptation and giving it a place in our hearts which we must fear. And that seems to be our truth more than we care to admit is so often we give underneath the pressure and the weight of the temptations we face and one by one by one those temptations those things that are tempting us start to take its place in our hearts and becomes what we strive after and what we push after every one of us knows temptation but we are not alone We come to Luke chapter 4 and we find our Savior in a relatable position, being tempted. Being tempted with a lot of the same things that we are tempted with today. And yet, as we go through chapter 4, we we see how he responds to each and every temptation he faces. And I think sometimes we so often forget that at our disposal is resources after resources after resources to help us in the midst of our temptation, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our testing. And it's my hope that as we go through the beginning of Luke 4 this morning, we would see how we are to handle, how we are to combat, how we are to work against the enemy and the temptation that he throws at us. So we're going to start in the first two verses in chapter 4. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. You know, this picks right up after Jesus' baptism. We see that he goes, he's baptized by John, and the the heavens are torn open, and the Holy Spirit descends upon Christ in the form of a dove, and 
God speaks and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And then we see him full of the Holy Spirit, taken, led by the Spirit into the wilderness. You see, there's a lot of interesting things in these first two verses. For starter, Mark's gospel paints this phrase, this idea of being led by the Spirit, with a little more intensity. Mark says in his gospel, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. The literal meaning behind that phrase, drove him out into the wilderness, is thrown out or thrust into the wilderness. It wasn't, hey, Jesus, come with me. I'm going to take you into the wilderness. It was, he was thrown into the wilderness, thrust out into the wilderness. And for 40 days, he's being tempted, and he's hungry. He's eaten nothing. This 40-day motif is one that's very prominent when you read through Scripture. We see it in Genesis 7, 4. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. In Exodus 24:18, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. You can look in 1 Kings 19:8 and Jonah 3:4 and see this 40-day motif. And you see that he's out there being tempted by the devil. Luke uses the word devil, which means the slanderer or the one who falsely accuses. Matthew uses both the words devil and Satan, Satan meaning adversary. And there are some things that I think that we need to understand about our enemy. And I think so often we live on one opposite end of the spectrum or the other. On one end of the, op- or on one end of the spectrum, we talk too much about our enemy. On the other end, we don't talk about him at all. But we need to understand who our enemy is. You see, our enemy, the devil, Satan, he is a powerful angel. 2 Corinthians 11.14, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 2 Thessalonians 2.9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. You see, our enemy was one who was ousted from heaven because of pride. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15 tells us how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. You see, he's the ruler of the dark forces of this world. Jude 1.6, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Here's the thing. He seeks to destroy the church. He seeks to destroy each and every one of us, bringing us down. First Peter 5.8, Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But here's the thing that I think is most important. He is still under God's control. He is still under God's control. He can do nothing to be out from underneath God's control. Job 1.12, we see this in there. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. 
over in Job 2.6, and the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. He still has to listen to the one who is in control. Before we move on to these temptations that he faces, I think it's interesting the parallel you see here between the first Adam and this new Adam. The first Adam is in the garden. He's in paradise has the pick of all the trees except for one. He has food aplenty. He has companionship in that moment with Eve. And yet he falls. And here we find Christ hungry in a desert weekend. We find him tempted for 40 days, hungry for 40 days. And yet we know how this all plays out. So let's start with these temptations in verse 3. It says, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. This first temptation here is often referred to as the temptation of the lust of the flesh. And right here we see Satan telling Jesus to take this stone and turn it to bread to satisfy his hunger. You're hungry, Jesus. Take this stone, turn it to bread, eat and be nourished. I get that temptation. I'm sure we all do. When I get hungry, when I start to hear my stomach growling, the first thing I do is go to the pantry. When I have a partial fast before a doctor's appointment, it's the worst thing ever because I'm like, I just want to eat. I get it. But you see, this temptation is way more than just turn the stone to bread and feed yourself. You see, at its core, what Satan is saying, he's saying, if or since you are the Son of God, where is he? Where is he? You're hungry, you're starving, you need food, you need sustenance for your body. Where, where is your father? He's not here for you. He's not taking care of you. He's not providing for you. He's not giving you what you need. So take it into your own hands. He's taking him, or he's telling him, break that faith that you have in your father. He's not providing for you. He's not giving you what you need. How often do we say the same thing or think the same thing? Man, God, he must not really care. He must not really care about me. I'm suffering. My body is failing. And where is he? He's not stepping in. He's not providing. He's not reaching out. He's not taking care of me. Does he truly love me? We think that more often than we would care to admit. It's so easy to, to thank God when things are good. And actually, a lot of times when things are good, we thank ourselves. But as soon as things go bad... God, where are you? And that's what he's saying here. Turn that stone to bread. Your God's not providing. He's not giving you what you need. Take it in your own hands. And what if he would have done this? What if he would have said, okay, he's not providing me what I need, so I'm just going to go ahead and do this. I'm going to turn this stone to bread. I love how Mark Moore describes this. He says, if Jesus starts using his power for selfish ends right at the beginning of his ministry, there is no way that he could have completed his march through Gethsemane. Furthermore, it would take him out of the realm of human existence. It could no longer be said that he suffered like we do and that he used a miraculous means of escape, and we can't do that. He would not be able to say he understands our suffering, but we see Jesus respond. 
And he responds here the same way he will respond to all of these with the, re, with the reciting, with the quoting of Scripture. And the first Scripture he quotes comes in Deuteronomy 8.3. It says, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What is Moses saying here? Moses is reminding Israel that they needed to humble themselves and rely on God. He reminds them about how when they were hungry, he provided manna for them. And each and every morning when they went outside, there would be manna there. And they had to trust that that would be there. What they had to do is they had to believe in what God said. And they had to trust in him and his goodness and his provision for them, for their existence. Because think about this, if God just didn't care, if God didn't love them, if God wasn't going to provide for them, he could have just easily struck them down. They gave, them, they gave him opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to do so. But no, he provides for them and they needed to rely on him and his provision. No, they needed to live not on bread alone, but in faith. They needed to live in faith that God would do everything he said. And when God promised what he would do, or when he promised he would do something, he would do it. And that's why Jesus is saying what he's saying here. His trust is in God. He's relying on God. God would provide what he needed. And then we go into verse 5. It says, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This next temptation is often referred to as the lust of the eyes. And what's interesting here is Luke and Matthew, they flip in their telling of these temptations. They flip these second and third temptations in each of their texts. We don't know why Luke does this, but Luke doesn't make the claim that he's writing this all in the exact order it happened. The fact that Matthew puts then after the first temptation points to this likely being the more accurate order of what took place. But either way, the temptation is thrown out there. The temptation is thrown out there. And at this time, Satan takes him and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and tells him he will give him authority over all of it. But there's just one catch. Jesus has to worship him. This miraculous, or this points to what is probably a miraculous vision for him to be able to see all of the kingdoms. However, it's also rumored that this took place on a mountain called Quarantania, and I believe there's a picture up there. And it's believed that if this is where Jesus was at the pinnacle of this, at the top of this, it would offer a nice view of Palestine and all the roads leading to what would then have been known as the known world. Rome, Greece, Persia, Assyria. He would have possibly been able to see the roads leading to what was at this time the known world. But then we hear Satan say that, I have some authority I have some authority, and I can give you some of this authority. It's not untrue. It's not untrue what he's saying here. He does have some delegated authority that had been given to him from God. 
John 12, 31, it says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. In John 14, 30, it says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. And here's what's so interesting about this. The kingdoms of this world had already been promised to him, to the son. Psalm 2, 7 through 8, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. But here's the thing. Before this could happen, the son of God had to first suffer and he first had to die. Revelation chapter 5, 8 through 10. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Something had to happen first. He had to suffer and he had to go to the cross. And after this, then the glory would come. Luke 24, 25 through 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. You see, at its core, this is much more than just, I can give you authority. No, what Satan is telling him here is, skip all of that. Skip all of that. If you will simply worship me, I will give you another way. You never have to suffer. You never have to go to the cross. You can just skip all of that, and I can give you authority over these kingdoms, and and you'll be good. Just worship me. And this phrase, worship me, is interesting. This, is, this word here is a verb that's known as an aorist subjunctive. And you might be wondering, what is an aorist subjunctive? Well, defined, it's a verb tense in classical Greek that expressed action or, in the indicative mood, past action without further limitation or implication. So what does that mean? Simply put, what the enemy, what Satan is saying is, listen, I don't need you to worship me all the time. I just need you to worship me this one time. Just one time. That's all you have to do. Just one time, worship me in this moment. Bow down, worship me, and I will give you the way out. All you got to do is just one time, worship me. It really is all it takes, isn't it? Just one time. One time to let the enemy get his claws in us. One time to get hooked. And think about what this would have meant for us if he said, okay, all right, give me that authority. Think about it. The wrath of God not satisfied. No sacrificial lamb, no blood poured out for us, no reconciliation with the Father if he simply said, all right. But Jesus does what he did the first time, and he goes back to the scripture. This time, Deuteronomy 6.13, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. 
him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You see this text that he's quoting, Moses is warning the people, you're getting ready to go into the promised land, the land that had been given to you, the land that God has, is going to put you in, that, that promised land. You're getting ready to go into that promised land. And here's the thing. You're going to be tempted as soon as you get in there to turn away and forget about the God who brought you there in the first place. And you're going to be tempted to believe in other gods. And you're going to be tempted to believe in the gods of the people that you're going into the land. You need to remember who God is, the God who brought you here, the God who's been with you every step of the way. Remember him and worship him only. And that temptation, that stands for us today, doesn't it? And we fall at the feet of our idols. Those things that are tempting us, we fall at their feet and we worship and we worship and we worship those things more than we care to admit. We forget who our God is, the God who's been with us every step of the way, the God who's been leading us, providing for us, taking care of us. We turn and we fall at the feet of idols. And Jesus is saying to him, this offer is foolish. No, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. Worship the Lord God. Him only will I worship. To him only will the glory be. And we move into verse 9. It says, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And so we see this uh, last temptation take place here in this moment. And it's often referred to as the pride of life, the temptation of the pride of life. Jesus is taken to the pinnacle of the temple and told to throw himself off and the angels would come down and would protect him. And in doing so, he would draw the reverence and awe and respect from everyone who saw it. Now, we don't know what the high point of the temple is referring to here. It could have been a variety of places. It could have been the apex of the sanctuary, or it could have been the top of the royal portico, or it could have been the top of Solomon's porch. Many believe that it was the southeast corner that overlooked the Kidron Valley. But he's taken up there, and Satan responds, you should jump, and the angels will come, and they'll catch you, and they'll protect you. And then it's as if Satan responds in a sense of saying, okay, guess what? You can quote scripture. Guess what? I can quote scripture. I can quote scripture too. And so what does he do? He, he quotes Psalm 91:11, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And partially, Satan is correct in what he quotes here. God does send angels to help and protect. In Job 1.10, have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. In Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. But here's the thing. You can also see what Satan does here. He leaves out in all your ways. In all your ways. What he's doing here, he's twisting scripture. 
He's twisting scripture. He's manipulating scripture. He's making it says, or say what he wants it to say. You see, God will protect and help us in all of our times of need, but self-seeking pride is not included in this. And here's the thing. Seeing this, the nation would see this, and they would see the protection that he's given, and it would cause the people to immediately accept him. Look at this. This must be the Messiah. This is the one who was promised because nobody else can do this. Angels don't come down to rescue people and stuff like this. This would prove that he is the Messiah. Think about it. It would have saved time. It would have saved a lot of messy ministry situations for Jesus. But again, it would misunderstand the Lord's plan. And again, it would take away the need for the cross. But again, Jesus goes back to Scripture. This time he goes to Deuteronomy 6, 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Moses is calling back to a time in Exodus 17 when the people tested God by asking if he was even with them. God, are you even here? Are you even with us? Are you even taking care of them? All of this because they didn't have any water. And instead of trusting God and his leading, they ask, are you even with us? God, if you're with us, then you'll give us what we need. They were testing him. They were testing his goodness. They were testing his provision. They were testing whether or not he would come through. Back to Jesus here. I love how Warren Wiersbe describes this verse. It says, Jesus balanced scripture with scripture to get the total expression of God's will. Jesus knew God's plan, his will, and he knew that the Father was with him. R.C. Sproles puts it this way. In other words, Jesus said, I'm not allowed to put God to the test. Instead, God is testing me. God is testing me to see if I will rely on him in his provision and his goodness and his, and his faithfulness. And then we see that the enemy departs. Satan departs from him. Matthew tells us that Jesus told him to be gone, and so he must be gone because Christ is still over him. And we know he departs, but it is not for good. He, this wasn't the first time Jesus faced temptation. He would have faced temptation growing up. He faced temptation now, and this will not be the last time that we see him face temptation. We'll see it in many other instances. Think about the big example in the garden before Jesus is arrested and taken to trial and hung on a cross. But I think Matthew's text ends with something very important in Matthew 4.11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. You see, Jesus didn't need to do any of those things. He didn't need to turn stones to bread. He didn't need to worship the enemy. He didn't need to test the Father. He just needed to trust in him and believe in what he said. And when he, after all of this is done, what happens? God comes through. God gives him everything that he needed. One more time, R.C. Sprouls. I love what he says here. It is one thing to believe in God. It is another thing to believe God. Christ triumphed over Satan because he believed God. He trusted God. He put his life in the hands of God, and he was victorious. 
It's one thing to say, I believe in God. It's another thing to actually believe God, to believe what his word says is true, to believe that God will take care of us and provide for us, to believe that God is going to be faithful to us, that God loves us. To believe is different than to believe in. We need to believe in what he says. And the truth for us is this. Temptation is going to come trials are going to come. Each and every one of us in this room, each and every day, are tempted and tried. Each and every day. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14 reminds us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Christ has laid out a perfect example of withstanding temptation. And he was tempted before and after this. Remember what the author of Hebrews said. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. But here's the good news Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He has given us means out, ways out. And so this next little bit of time, I just want us to talk about what are the resources that we have at our disposal in helping to withstand temptation that comes into our life each and every day. And we start with this, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. One of the best ways to resist temptation is to live life in the Spirit, to trust Him, to lean on Him. You see, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and He leaned on Him. We need to do the same thing. Paul says it this way in Galatians 5.16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so the question is, how does the Spirit then help us? What is it that the Spirit does that helps us? Well, he is the Spirit of truth. Randall was talking about truth and that we need to know truth and we need to hear truth and truth needs to be ever present. Well, here's the thing. The spirit is the spirit of truth. And when we are in those moments of temptation, when it's crouching at our doors, when we know that it's throwing everything at us, when the enemy is throwing everything at us, we can remember the truth because of the spirits. John 14, 16 through 17, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, yet you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. John 15, 26, John 16, 13 say the same thing. He is the spirit of truth. In those moments when we are being tempted, we can seek out the spirits and be reminded of the truth. What else does the Spirit do? Well, he helps us to glorify Christ. In those moments of temptation, when we are tempted to glorify the flesh, to glorify the sinful nature within us, the Spirit can help us to glorify instead Christ. 
Philippians 3.3, 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We can lean on the Spirit to bring glory to Christ. Another thing he does is he helps us in our doubts. Sometimes that's the biggest temptation we face is to doubt God, to doubt his goodness, to doubt his provision, to doubt his care, to doubt his love, to doubt everything he is. And the Holy Spirit can help us. He can remind us who he is, who our Father is, who our Messiah is in our doubts. Romans eight fifteen through 17, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him when the temptation is there to doubt him the spirit helps us to remember to whom it is we belong and so that's the question are we seeking the spirit's leading and guiding in our lives Romans 8:13 For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We have got to rely on and lean on the Holy Spirit in our lives. Second thing is this, prayer. Prayer. In the garden, when Jesus is facing what is to come, when the temptation is there to say, let's try a different plan, he's praying. I find, no, I find it no surprise on that same night, he says the following to Peter, Mark fourteen thirty eight. watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And remember when Jesus is teaching the disciples to pray, remember what he says in Matthew six thirteen and Luke eleven four. lead us not into temptations into temptation. Brothers and sisters, one of the best thing that we can do in the middle of temptation is to pray. Pray before, pray during, pray after, but pray. A.B. Simpson once said it this way, temptation exercises our faith and teaches us to pray. It's in the midst of temptation that we learn the importance of prayer. Prayer is a powerful and important tool, and it's not just an important thing individually in each of our own lives to pray uh, each and every day, but it's important that we come together and we pray together with one another, for one another. Again, Randall talked about it earlier. This is When we pray together, it's an important time. It's an important time to lift up what's going on in our lives, praying to him, asking for his help. Listen to how James puts it in James 5, 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Prayer is a powerful thing, and if we are not doing it in the midst of temptation, we are going to be in trouble. We have got to be praying. We've got to lean on the Spirit, and we have got to be praying. And the third one is this, the Word of God. 
the word of God. Look back again at what Jesus did. The word of God repeated over and over and over to the enemy when he was tempting Christ. If this is what Christ did in the face of temptation, he quoted scripture, he recalled scripture, he he shared scripture. If this is what Christ did in the face of temptation, why would we think that we don't need to have the word of God stored up in our hearts and our minds? If anything, we need it all the more. How often are we making it a habit of being in the word of God, studying the word of God, learning the word of God, memorizing the word of God? You see, the truth is we live in a culture that everything is accessible, isn't it? I mean, it's not hard. You can pull out your phone this morning and you can Google anything that is on your heart, anything that is on your mind. You can Google and you can find you know, result after result after result after result of whatever it was that you searched for. And it is not hard to fill our hearts and minds with so many things because we have access to everything. It's not impossible to find whatever, whatever thing that we're struggling, whatever thing is tempting us, it is not impossible to find. Listen to the words of John Owen. When I read these, it stung a bit. Temptations and occasions put nothing into a man, but only draw out what was in him before. Man, this makes it even more so important to have the word of God stored up in our hearts and in our minds. Because what is in our hearts, what is in our minds, is what comes out in our life. So we need to have the same mindset as what we read in Psalm 119.11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119 again, this time verse 97 and 98. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies for it is ever with me. This should be our mindset. Why is it important? Why is it important that we know the word of God? Well, I think most importantly, it helps us to make good decisions. To know the word of God, to know what it says in his word helps us to make good and sound decisions. I mean, think about it. The word of God is filled with good advice. When it comes to temptation, what does scripture tell us to do? It tells us to flee from temptation. Don't stand and put yourself in a position where temptation is constantly knocking at you. If you know your struggles, your weaknesses, don't put yourself there. Look at Genesis 39 in the story of Joseph. Man, that's a man who would flee leaving everything behind, including his clothes. 1 Corinthians 6.18 tells us, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Do not put yourself in a position where temptation is strong. Matter of fact, Scripture tells us to stay away from those things in general that cause temptation. 1 Thessalonians 5.22, stay away from every kind of evil. Proverbs 4, 14 through 15, do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. Don't put yourself in a position where temptation will knock you down to begin with. These are just examples of what we learn by reading the word of God by studying the word of God, by being in the word of God. And so take advantage every opportunity you have to be in the word of God. You can listen to it on your phones this morning. Each of you could pull out your phone and listen to the word of God. 
You have opportunities here, Monday nights, Tuesday nights, Wednesday nights. Come and be in the Word. We need to know the Word of God. I'll share this. Sometimes I come in here on Wednesday nights and I feel a little bit envious. I see these kids come up here and there's whiteboards and there's scripture on it and they can move it around to put the scripture where how it's supposed to be. They can come up here and they can read scripture, but then they can quote scripture and big chunks of scripture and they're memorizing it and they're learning it. And I'm sitting here thinking, man, when was the last time I put as much work and effort into memorizing the word of God? We all need to have that mindset to memorize the word of God, to know the word of God, to study the word of God, to be in the word of God. Every one of us will face temptation. But here's the truth. God can take that temptation and he can use it to strengthen our faith, to grow us closer to him. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they make their way up here, I just love how Richard Sibbs, Sibbs says it. He says, Satan gave Adam an apple and takes away paradise. Therefore, in all temptations, let us consider not what he offers, but what we shall lose. And that's the thing. That's the thing. How do we, you know, temptations going to come? Temptation is going to come. We're going to face temptation. And the thing that we need to remember is what happens, not, not what he's offering us, but what we lose by taking what he offers What are the things that we lose by taking what it is he offers? Maybe you are here this morning and the enemy has been pouncing. The enemy just hasn't been waiting outside the door. The enemy is there and he has been pouncing on you, getting the better of you. Here's the truth. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all stumble. We all make mistakes. I feel like a hypocrite talking about Luke chapter 4 because I know how often I don't run, I don't flee, I fall. But in those moments, I think about the way John words it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so maybe you're here this morning and the enemy has been pouncing. He has been coming after you and so maybe what you need to do this morning is you just need to go before the father and you just need to confess you just need to lay it at his feet I've been struggling with this I've been tempted and been beaten down by the enemy in this area and I just need to come before you and just lay this all at your feet so here's what we're going to do this morning as we get ready to do this last song I want you to think, what are the things that you need to lay at his feet this morning? What are the sins that you've been struggling with? What are the things that you need to confess before him? You just need to give over to him. Spend some time this morning in prayer, just leaving all of that at God's feet. If you need to pray with somebody, you can come up here. I'd love to pray with you. You can pray where you're sitting. You can ask somebody next to you, will you please pray with me? This morning, he is 
we see that our Savior was tempted in each and every way that we were, and yet he did not sin. He understands, he can empathize with our struggles, with our, our shortcomings, but he has also given us ways out. Are we relying on the Holy Spirit? Are we spending time in prayer? And are we learning and memorizing, knowing the word of God? I encourage you, if you're not this week, lean into the Spirit. Spend time in prayer and be in the Word. This morning, if you're here and you need to pray, up here where you're sitting with somebody next to you, please do so. We're going to stand and sing together.